Welcome to this week's podcast from Free Chapel in Orange County. We hope that you enjoy this encouraging message. For more information on our church family, visit freechapel.org forward slash OC. The title of my talk is What God Congratulates. What God Congratulates. We go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those when blessed are those when you are when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And for they for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In the 1930s and the 1940s, there was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He lived in Germany. He was a he, he was a doctor. You know, he had his doctorate. He was a professor. He was a well-off man, um, and then Nazi Germany came in and began to take over. And during the 1930s and you know 20s and 30s, as Nazi Germany began to take over, there was this tension between the church and the state for those who were being complicit and those who were not. And the church in Germany was driven underground, where they could not openly worship anymore. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer left his comfort of wealth, left this job, and went and started a, a community of believers where he was training up two dozen pastors and leaders to fight against the evils of Nazi Germany in the spirit. He was a, you know, he was a professing pacifist, by the way. And he, was, he died for a plot against to kill, to kill Hitler. So it's just a, such an ironic life. But in this place, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And there was a story one time, a pastor came to Dietrich Bonhoeffer and he says, you're being too spiritual. You've left everything. What are you doing? Come back to earth. Go back to your job. Go back to your wealth. Just, just go in line with what they're doing. And he said, let's go for a boat ride. They went on a boat ride across the way and they went to this base where they were training soldiers in the Third Reich. And he says, the way that they are forming these young men to fight for their cause is what I am doing in my place. I am forming people to fight a battle that is spiritual. And we cannot allow them to outform people. We need to form people for the cause of Christ. And then they rode back on the boat and the boat ride was completely silent. And it was in that place that he wrote The Cost of Discipleship. He, wrought, he talks about the kingdom of God. Throughout the first three gospels, we see that this is actually the central message of Jesus himself, is the kingdom of God. A new way of living, a new kingdom, a new community that is centered around our father and learning the family business. It's the kingdom of God. The book of Matthew is really the book of kingship. It establishes not only Christ's spiritual kingship, that he will be the eternal king, but through his lineage of his father, Joseph, it actually establishes earthly kingship. So like the genealogy that we all fast forward through, right? It's really important. It's like when we listen on audiobook, we do times five. It's like, he begat, he begat, he begat. All right, cool. That's over. You know, who reads that? We should. What is it doing? It's proving a point that the promise that God gave to David that his lineage would be kingships forever, it finishes and is completed in Jesus. So Matthew is the book of kingship and it's talking about the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is this. It's God's effective rule, reign, and dominion. 
And this, the passage of scripture we read is the beatitude is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably one of the most debated passages of scripture that we have in, in, in our text today, especially the beatitudes. Even Gandhi loved the beatitudes. Muhammad loved the beatitudes. Marx, Karl Marx used the beatitudes in a lot of his manifesto because there's a misinterpretation and misunderstanding of what are these beatitudes. Some think that the beatitudes are just ethics. We just gotta be good people. And this is what Jesus is saying. If you do these things, you're gonna be a good person and that's what we need. Some people think that it was an actual, literal, physical kingdom where it's gonna be a political uprising and an upheaval of the system and they're gonna tear it all down and they're gonna rebuild it all and this is what God is saying. This is a literal, physical, political uprising. This is what Jesus came to do. Then there's those who who are waiting for the, the, the future kingdom. No, this is only about the future. God's not talking about now. He's not saying that this is present now. We have to wait and bury our heads in the sands and wait for us all to be raptured and then the kingdom of God will come and then we'll be okay. That's also not what Jesus was saying. Jesus introduced a concept that theologians call the already and the not yet. He brought in the initiation of the kingdom and now we're awaiting the consummation of the kingdom. So there's in this place and in this space, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God, because the, the, the verbiage in the text is present. It's not in the future. He's saying the kingdom of God is now. So you have access to this kingdom now, but it will come in its fullness later. See, it's coming in its fullness. The future kingdom is really our hope. Our hope is attached to this. It's attached to Jesus and the promise that one day he will bring heaven down to earth and restore earth to its former glory, the glory and the intention in the way that God designed it to be. And we will live in a heavenly kingdom on earth with God and we will rule and reign in his supernatural kingdom. That is what's waiting for us. But we have access right now also to the kingdom of God, to learn how to operate in the family business here on earth. The title of our series is Here and Now. So sometimes we think, well, what do I do? I'm just waiting for the future or we get so caught up in the past. So Jesus addressed us today. What do we do while we walk in the kingdom now? And what does it look like? What does it look like to live in the kingdom now? This is Jesus's manifesto to a counter community to the normal way of living that is self-seeking, self-preserving, self-centered. Jesus fully inverted this life and saying, my community will not live that way. My community will not be self-preserving. My community will not be self-seeking. My community will not be self-centered. I want from the, the, the center of who we are, from the inside out, flow a new way of living in the kingdom community that is contrast to the world. And it's not out of self-righteousness, but it's because of being transformed by his righteousness. So it, nine times it says this word blessed. When I growing up, I thought blessed meant I had to have a Rolls Royce. Come on in Jesus' name. <laughs> I'm like, yo, give me that Rolls and I'll be blessed. And I ain't hating on it. If you got one, praise God. But what does blessed mean? It means divine favor conveyed on man or this. Those who will be fortunate, those who are to be congratulated by God, because of their response to him. To be blessed is saying that when you do these things, when you get to that eternal kingdom, when God looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant, he's really gonna be saying this, congratulations, you chose correctly. And it's based on how you live your life. He wants to give 
these congratulations. So what do we do that God will bless us and congratulate us in eternity? What does that look like? What is a new way of living in the kingdom of God to, that God has called us to now? We're gonna go through the Beatitudes and we're gonna answer that question. The first one says this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is not the freedom to have an immature faith. Sometimes we're like, I'm just poor in spirit. You know, I just can't get it right. <laughs> just do what I want, you know. Oh man, I missed it. Poor in spirit, you know, really humble. Like, poor in spirit is not your get out of jail free card, be as immature as you want in your faith and do what you want. Poor in spirit really means this. It means that you recognize and understand that without Christ spiritually, you are ineffective. It's the recognition and need for Christ himself and recognizing that in Christ, I can be spiritually effective. Apart from Christ, I will be spiritually ineffective. So poor in spirit is not necessarily you just being, you know, well, I just can't do it. No, he's saying, no, in Christ, you are effective. Apart from him, you are ineffective. And, and, and oftentimes they would link real poverty to poor in spirit. See, he was, this is an upheaval of their worldview. Why? Because they would think that if you were poor, that you were, you, you were disconnected from God in the Jewish tradition. That wealth meant that God blessed you, God favored you, and you were doing something right. Poverty meant that you were doing something wrong and God must be mad at you. So Jesus is saying, he flipped it on his head. He's saying he's realizing, he's teaching them that usually, that's why oftentimes it says it's easier for a poor man to enter the kingdom of God. People like have, like no one likes to hear that in capitalism, America. You know, it's like, oh God, what, what do you mean? You know, that doesn't mean you have to be poor. Poor or rich does not determine whether or not you are saved. What he's trying to bring is drive a deeper point. He's saying, generally speaking, those who are in poverty have less that they have to hold on to and less that define them. So they are more easily reliant upon the spiritual need of Christ himself. So sometimes our, our, our status, our 401k, our salary, all of these things that are not bad things. In fact, I believe that God gives us these blessings. Sometimes those things become the very thing that keeps us from being poor in spirit because we think that we can give us these things rather than God himself. So we become spiritually ineffective when we we think that these things define who we are rather than God himself. So he's flipping it upside down. We need God to heal us in the best place. You know, he, he, he has to heal us. He has to make us whole. He has to restore us. He has to make us new. These are things that status, money, and, 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 and your retirement cannot do. It has to come from Christ himself. It says this, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. We are not called to just shake off grief or just internalize it and keep our head moving. We are called to mourn, to grieve and not just our own pain and our own loss, but we are called to run to others who are grieving and mourning as well. We do not run away from grief, we run to grief. Why? Because we have the comforter and the counselor, his name is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says, I want to bring supernatural comfort to you as well as I want to use you to bring supernatural comfort to others. We should be looking for those who are mourning. We ourselves, if we have gone through tragedy, if we've gone through pain, if we've gone through hurt, we should grieve. Even in Ecclesiastes, there's a time to, to, to have joy and then there's a time to grieve. There's sometimes you need to grieve 
because it allows the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit is you know, made to do is to heal you, to restore you, to comfort you. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. We should grieve personal sin. There's, when, we, when we fall short of God's glorious standard, it sh- we should have conviction. We should have repentance. We should grieve loss. We should grieve hurt. We should grieve our world that's going to hell right now. To, to put your head in the sand and say, well, it doesn't matter. It's all going to end anyways. And I tend to do that. Is actually against what Christ has called us to do. We should feel the pain of our world. We should feel the pain of what people feel. We should mourn with them, even if they disagree with us. He's not telling you to go and tell them what they need to know all the time. He's saying right now in this moment, I need you to mourn with them. I'll bring truth. It's there. It doesn't change the standard, but we need to mourn. We should feel the weight of what's going on in our world right now. We should feel the weight of what's going on in our country. We should feel the weight of what's going on in our families and the attack against our families. It's a supernatural attack. We should feel the weight and we should mourn. But we don't stay there. It says that then we are comforted. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I love this one. Meekness is God's counter-conquering strategy. In the world, what is conquer? What do we do to conquer? It's out of anger. It's out of expansion. It's out of pride. You go and you go and you take the land. You say, this is mine. I conquered it. In the kingdom of God, that is not how we conquer in his kingdom. It says, meekness will inherit the earth. So it's the counter-conquering strategy to the world. It's not those who are aggressive or oppressive, but it's those who live a life that is humble and gentle. Meekness is... The, the, to renounce every right of your own for the sake of living for Christ. What does meekness mean? What did Christ do? Christ was meek. It describes him as meek. He left heaven with every right of his own and he came to earth. He took on our human condition. He was persecuted. He had pain and he died. And he did all of that not to be served, but to serve. I did not come here to be served. I came here to serve. The kingdom of God is expanded through those who walk humbly and gently by the spirit of God. Light will always conquer darkness and light is best portrayed when we are those who walk in humility and walk in grace. We are not just called to renounce our own rights but to announce the righteousness of God in us. See, there's death to self but then we need to announce the righteousness of God. What is it that we die to our desires, but we don't announce his desires? Our life does not portray who he is. That's what meekness is, is I'm going to die to who I am, and I'm going to allow my life to portray who he is. I'm going to come to serve you. I'm going to go to the table of my enemies, and I'm going to serve them. I'm going to love the people who curse me. I'm going to, if they slap me on one cheek, I give them the other one. See, this is, a, this, is this, this, this countercultural way of God is saying, I want to put my righteousness on display. I don't need you to, display, to, to try to conjure it up for me. Let me do my thing. Get out of the way. And when we allow the Holy Spirit to come out of who we are, guess what is portrayed? Is righteousness, peace, and joy. And people begin to say, I want to live in that kingdom. I'm not sure about the kingdom that I'm in right now. That is how God conquers, and that's his conquering strategy. It says, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This speaks to the essential needs. And we see God's standards established and obeyed in our life. That God's righteousness and his standards become the essential need of what we have. It says, I hunger and thirst. We need to eat and we need to drink to live. So what Jesus is saying is you need to do the same thing for my righteousness. That should be your essential desire is to please me with how you live. That doesn't mean that we'll always get it right, but it should be our central desire. If spiritual formation into Christ's likeness is not our deepest desire, then we may have missed what the kingdom of God is. Paul says this, I labor and I, and I, and I wrestle with that all of you will be formed into the image of Christ. All of you. This is our design. This is our call. We are called to be those, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer did in Germany, to be formed into an image of Christ, to fight a war that is not a physical war, but a spiritual war, an all-out assault on the next generation. Why are we falling to this war? Because we have forgotten to be formed by Christ himself. And we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. The very essential nature of who we are is I want to please God with how I live. And only way I can do that is Holy Spirit, you've got to empower me to do it. Help me. But I see your standard and I want it to become a part of who I am. So we will hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's like when Jesus says, seek thee first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. It's the same concept. He says, why are you worrying about all these other things? I'll take care of those. What I want you to worry about is the very essential nature of who you are. I want you to desire to be more like me. I want you to desire to, 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 to have the righteousness of God on display in your life. Spiritual formation is not a suggestion. It's a command of a disciple. We are called to be those who are formed into the image of God. And Romans says that those who are called, he foreknew that he predestined to grow into the image of God. So some people have taken that verse and said, well, God just predestines and chooses who will be saved and won't be saved, right? Like the people who argue that are, have you ever heard someone say like, I believe in predestination and I'm going to hell? Like, no, they're the ones who always are chosen. It's like, that's not fair. You get it like Calvinism, you'll get it later. What is that verse actually saying? He says, if you belong to Christ, then be who you are predestined to be in the kingdom of heaven, in, morphed into, formed into the image of Christ, to look more like Christ, to display his righteousness, be who God has already predestined every believer to be. That should be your practice. That should be your desire. That should be your goal, that I want to be someone who displays the image of God to everyone around me, not because I am self-righteous or because I am good, but because the Sermon on the Mount says this, it's no longer from the outside in, but it's the inside out. So if I have been transformed on the inside, then eventually what's gonna happen is on the outside, transformation will begin to take root. The book of Matthew and the book of James are all about transformation. That when you have intimacy with God and you have proximity to Yahweh, what will happen is you will change and you will transform. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Merciful is to be generous, compassionate for the suffering, to look to bring healing to every kind of wound and every hurt everywhere we go. Mercy covers up, it doesn't expose. Mercy. 
See, sometimes we mix up grace and mercy. Mercy is God not giving you what you do deserve, which is punishment. It's forgiving you. Thank God he forgave us, amen? God forgives you with his mercy. Grace is God not giving you what you deserve. You deserve punishment, you deserve, but God's not gonna give it to you because he died on, well, if you receive him, right? Said Jesus took the wrath of God on the cross. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. So mercy is God forgiving you of what you do deserve. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. It's not just forgiveness, but it's empowerment to be who God has called you to be. So when Peter says, my friends, may you grow in grace, this means that this empowerment is actually something that can grow in your life. It's not just a one-time forgiveness like mercy, but grace is something that can be poured out into your life and can grow and can expand. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors, says this, that the greatest saints in the church don't need the least grace. They, they are the ones who live in the most grace. They wake up every day realizing, I need more grace. I need your empowerment. But mercy, see, we could not live if it wasn't for the mercy of God. So because he's been merciful, we should be Merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This speaks to a lifestyle that is defined to one singular-minded devotion to God. Pure in heart means I have singular devotion to God. The book of James puts it this way. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Or if you really look into that word, it's a double-souled man. So when we try to have different allegiances and different kingdoms, guess what? We will become unstable, unsteady, and ineffective. So to be pure in heart is to have a singular devotion to Christ himself and say, God, I am serving you and you alone, your kingdom, not my kingdom. I'm not here to build my personal empire. I'm here to build the kingdom of heaven itself. And so God, I give you my heart. And guess what begins to happen? It says, you shall see the Lord. It begins to produce what we need is intimacy. Psalms 24 says this, that who shall... Ascend to the hill of the Lord, who shall stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. We are called to have a whole devotion to God from the inside out, not the outside in. Christianity is not about you trying to fix it on the outside and then God healing on the out, inside. It's the opposite of every religion that we that practice today. We believe from the inside, God transforms you. And then from the outside, it begins to transform who you're, what you do and what you practice. See, sometimes we make it about doing and not doing, but Christ made it about becoming or not becoming. Now, can I just say something real about wholehearted devotion? Spiritual formation is not just a Christian thing. Your spirit will be formed one way or the other. The question is, by who and by what? So we have to choose today what our spirit is being formed by. Is it being formed into Christ's likeness or something other than that? So there's spiritual transformation or spiritual deformation. And sin, it naturally deforms us away from the image of God. The spirit of God naturally transforms us into the image of God. But we can't choose to live in both worlds. We are called to become. So it's not about doing or not doing. That's religion. It's about becoming. And my question today in all of this is who are we becoming? Are we becoming someone that we mirror these beatitudes? Or are we becoming someone that's different or deformed into something else? This is what Christ was teaching. It says this. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We are not called to just find peace. Every spiritual practice today says, come, you'll find peace here. Everyone's spiritual today. We're not like afraid of the spiritual realm like we used to. They love the spiritual realm. Use these crystals and you will have peace. It's all about finding peace. And we've turned Christianity into Christian Buddhism. We make it about project self. And that I come here to find peace for me. And it's become this place of just finding peace. But we are not called to just have peace. We are not called to just find peace. We are called to make peace. So what it means is this. Once you receive peace between you and God by, by grace through faith, that's receiving peace between you and God. You are now called to go make peace with everyone around you. This is a group project. So if there is discord in your family, it is your job to go and make peace. If there is discontention in your workplace, go make peace. We do not run away from conflict, we run to it. In our world today, there is a, a unrest between race, there's unrest between political parties, and the church has not taken up its role as peacemakers. We're trying to just be peacekeepers and trying to pick a side. We cannot pick a side. We are called to go in between the two and say, come together, let's make peace. We should be the ones on the front lines healing our society. We should be the ones bringing peace into our neighborhoods. We should be the ones bringing peace into our families. Yet we choose to run away from conflict even though God asks us to address it. We are not called to just have peace. I come to Sundays because it gives me peace. That is awesome. Now go share it. You got to go make it. Because if the only thing that we get from a Sunday is that we feel a peaceful feeling, but we, don't, we aren't those who practice peacemaking, we may have missed what that peaceful feeling really was, which is the spirit of Jesus. Genesis 13, 12 and 13, Abraham, it's the difference of being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. Chapter 12, he goes to Egypt and he gets so worried about what's gonna happen. So he's like, he gives his wife, he says, this is my sister, because she's so beautiful. So the Pharaoh marries his, his wife. And then God brings a curse on Pharaoh. He's like, dude, what did you do to me? Why'd you tell me she was your sister? He's like, oh, my bad, bro. You know, <laughs> slipped my mind, you know. <laughs> Wasn't sure, you know. So they leave and they bless and he goes. And then it says this, verse, chapter 13. And there was contention among his family between him and Lot. He had gotten so wealthy, they both did, that their herds couldn't work together. There was disunity. And you know what he did this time? He didn't try to keep the peace. He went and made peace. He gave up his right to choose where he would live. And he says, okay, Lot, it's not good that our family is fighting. I'm gonna make peace. Choose where you live and I'll go the other way. I trust God that he'll bless me wherever I go, but I'm gonna make peace. But too often we're doing the Lord's work the devil's way. And this is it. I know that sounds good, but let me explain it. I know it sounds good. I get it. Let me explain it. Wherever there's division and strife, there's every demonic work. So even if it's biblically true, if you are going in there to cause division and strife, guess what? You are doing the Lord's work the devil's way. 
God has called you to bring truth, yes. God, we don't change the standard. We don't change what God is saying. But what we do is by grace, we walk in there and say, I'm not going to bring division or strife. I'm going to bring healing. I'm going to bring restoration. I'm going to be the intermediary between the two and say, let's come together. I'm going to run to conflict. Does that mean everyone will settle it? No, Jesus tells us that. that If you go together and you can't get it settled, then go to the pastor. If the pastor can't settle it, then go to the church. If not, then you're out. See you later. That's how it... But there's a process. We just X people out right away. I don't agree with you. You're out of here. Interesting. Saw that post on Instagram. You voted for that guy. Ah, you're out of here. Why have we made it about politics? Why have we made it about social issues that Jesus talks about? Can I just say this? The political parties are not infallible or inerrant. They're not. But what's happening is the enemy is taking slivers of truth and then mixing it up with a bunch of lies and bringing division while the church sits back and tries to keep the peace instead of going, make it. Yes, there may be persecution when you make peace. Yes, there may be pain, but that is your call to be a peacemaker. And it says this, then they'll know that you're sons of God. A good, a, a good ambassador of the kingdom of God. Come on, he got it. A good ambassador of the kingdom of God will be a peacemaker. A good, we will, because our father brings peace, we should bring peace. It's what we're called to do. So if there's conflict in your family, if there's conflict in your marriage, if there's conflict, conflict in your friends, see, sometimes we always look so big and global. I can't bring peace to the whole world. You can bring peace to your family. You can bring peace to your friends. You can bring peace to people in church that really get on your nerves. Like, go make peace today. I'm serious. If someone here, you just can't stand, go make peace. Get it done. Because what we do is this. We allow the demonic to use us when we don't make peace. I got too hung up on that. I was going to preach a whole message just on that. But God told me to do the whole thing. I was like, ah, all right. Blessed are, the, blessed are the persecuted and those who are reviled. For the sake of righteousness, you are persecuted. All these characteristics are so counter to culture and such a counter community. Guess what happens? Persecution will come. When you live in such a way that is all about being formed into the image of Christ and we as a community do that together, persecution will come. And it's for the sake of righteousness. Peter defines, there's kind of two types of persecution. There's persecution because you, you did evil things, he says, or there's persecution for the sake of righteousness. So sometimes we think, well, I did this and I messed up and you know, I'm being persecuted. No, you just made a bad decision. Repent, get realigned. But there are times because the community of God is gonna have to stand for truth and stand for what God says. Guess what? Persecution will come. But anytime persecution is for the sake of Christ, it goes back on Christ. So when you get to heaven, there will be a reward. There will be God saying, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. But even here, we have been called blessed with persecution for Christ's sake. You get that? Blessed are those who are persecuted. God is saying this, if you can continue on through persecution, I'm gonna congratulate you because that is the proper response. You don't give up, you don't throw in the towel. You lean in, you bring healing, you bring hope. 
When someone slaps you on one cheek, what do you do? You turn and give them the next. When they say go one mile, I say go two. Jesus was such a savage. I know that's like a young person term, but like he was. He took everything that they were complaining about and he like flipped it on its head. You don't understand. The Roman soldiers make us carry 75 pounds of weight for a mile. He says, yeah, cool. I say go two miles, serve them. He flipped it all on its head. And before Christ gave demands, he gave blessings. Because if you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, it's like, oh my Lord, I can't do that. Right? He says this, you say don't murder. Yeah, don't murder. I say don't hate in your heart. Uh, I've murdered a lot of people. You say don't commit adultery. Yeah. I say, don't lust, ah, not as nice. He goes down a list and you know how he finishes? He finishes this list and everyone is probably like, this is what his disciples say. Well, can you teach us how to pray? <laughs> he gets to this list and they're like, oh man. And he goes, can you teach us how to pray? So we're gonna stand up today. We're gonna do this a little bit different. I told you it's gonna be different. Can you just work with me? Can you stand to your feet today? At the beginning of the sermon, we did some contending prayer, but now I wanna do something that's contemplative, if that makes sense. And I wanna pray through the Lord's prayer. Because you hear a message like the Beatitudes and you're like, man, that sounds good, but I, I don't know what to do. And the first practice that Jesus gives us after this Sermon on the Mount is prayer. So I wanna teach you something that my dad taught me growing up as a pastor's kid. I didn't have a choice. I had to pray this every morning, 5 a.m. going to Christian school, all right? So whether I liked it or not, I did it but I believe that it's been transformative in my life. But if we, it says, Jesus says this, it says, when you pray, you say. So I'm gonna just, it's gonna be a group project. We're gonna do the Lord's prayer together. Is that okay? We're gonna say a part of the Lord's prayer. We're gonna pause and then I'm gonna pray it over you. And we're gonna do the same thing. But if you can, if you can just close your eyes and just reach out your hands, this is where we finish service today. This is a great practice for us to do throughout the week. I wanna encourage you, do this throughout the week. Our Father in heaven, hallowed is your name. Say it, you, get, you, you can say it after me, ready? Say, our Father in heaven, hallowed is your name. Come on, church, when you pray, say, say it out loud. We're gonna try it again, ready? Our Father, hallowed is your name. Lord, we lift up your name today. You're, I'm gonna pray over you here. Lord, we lift you up. We worship you. We praise you. God, your name is higher than any other name. Your name is holy and only your name is holy. God, you are good and, and you are faithful and you are consistent and we lift you up. Father says, our Father. So what I want right now is you to begin to look at God as your Father. He's beginning to be healing Father wounds from earthly fathers, fathers who were distant, fathers who were who were not present, fathers who maybe who maybe weren't as intentional as you wanted. God is an intentional, present, good Father, and He's saying, sons and daughters, come to me, and I will heal, restore. Say, Your kingdom come, and Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
right now, oh God, over every person in their family, I pray the kingdom of God in their life, the kingdom of God in their marriage, the kingdom of God in their family, the kingdom of God in their finances. God, right now, we say your will be done. We are not gonna be anxious about the decisions where we, what we need to make and the direction we need to go because it's your will, not my will. I'm not in control, you are in control. You will open the doors, you will lead my way. God, your will be done in my life and the kingdom of heaven be at work in my family, in my marriage, in my kids. God, your will be done. Say this, say, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, right now, provision, protection, not just financially, not just naturally, but God, I pray spiritually, give them what they need today. Spirit of God, reveal what they need, remove maybe what's off, and God, align us to your will and provide for us today. As we walk in this wilderness of this tension, waiting for your kingdom to come, we pray that every single day your righteousness be the substance of our soul. God, provide for us today. Provide for us today. Forgive our debts. So you say this after me. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. God, I pray for forgiveness right now. We release bitterness, we release hurt. Any hurt that's turned into hate against family members, against fathers, against mothers, against children, against coworkers, against people in our church, we release it now, God. We release it now, we release it now. And we say, as we release forgiveness, you pour out grace that heals our soul, that heals our spirit, that heals our mind and aligns us to the mind of Christ himself. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Lord, I pray right now, protect us, protect our path protect our path, protect our path as we acknowledge you in all our ways and you shall direct our path. We are waiting and relying on you to tell us where to go and when to go. I pray that you protect us from temptation. You protect us from attacks of the enemy. You protect our children right now. We pray over the next generation. We say the attack that is being forced on our generation, we pray right now for protection. We pray for formation in our young people, formation in our children. And God, we thank you that you are protecting us. You are guiding us. And we pray that your kingdom is established not just for right now, but it's forever and ever. And our hope is in you. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in the promise of God. We don't have to be worried. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be faint. We don't have to be defeated. But God, we have victory in you. And we thank you for the kingdom that is eternal, the hope that is eternal, that is Jesus. And God, you are good. And your name is great and greatly to be praised. In Jesus' mighty, mighty name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. To watch our latest message, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. To stay connected, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Free Chapel OC.